this Hindu bashing is all over the place and so some factually untrue statements are pretty common as long as they serve the purpose of blackening Hinduism. Secularists are mostly Hindu-born people, though in India the effective usage of secularist means everyone except for non-apologetic, uh, non-ashamed Hindus. You see, if a, if a Hindu dares to speak up for himself, then immediately, Hindu toi! Yes. And then you're demonized and fascist and so on. And so everyone else is a secularist. Hindu Dharma and the Culture Wars. That's the title of a book of mine, published a few months ago. Uh, it has not received any publicity at all, as far as I know. No reviews, nothing. Nobody ever mentions it, let alone quotes it. But it's a good book, I can assure you. So I'll tell you what is in the book, more or less, you know. So it's a, it's a collection of long articles and papers. And uh, it's about the culture wars. Now, this uh, term is popular in America, uh, where it more or less means the struggle between modernity and uh, religion. And so it deals with issues on which the religions have an outspoken position, which is at variance with that of modernists. Uh, chiefly the uh, sexual uh, mores, uh, the uh, status of abortion, of gay marriage. They have not yet in America reached the point where they make euthanasia uh, thinkable, let alone possible, but in Europe, in several countries, this has also happened. In my country, it is legal to commit euthanasia. Um, so ultimately, it's, uh, it's, the word is coined in this, a similar situation of struggle between state and church, namely in 19th century Germany, where it is Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, the chancellor, who coined the term Kulturkampf, which means culture war. And so he uh, meant to uh, get a grip on the education system, which was mainly controlled by the churches. Ultimately, he failed, by the way. Um, but uh, at any rate, it's that, that type of struggle. And so, while not always about the same issues, you do have that type of struggle in India too. Uh, so the emphasis is a bit different. But, you see, concerning these issues that are already associated with the term culture war because of its American use, uh, I can be very brief. Um, the issue of abortion in India is not alive, though, strictly speaking, conscious Hindus are for its prohibition. In 1996, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad approached all parties before the election with a list of 40 demands the Hindu agenda. So one among them was a prohibition on abortion. Now, there is no party that seriously would consider this. 
because the overpopulation problem in India is so pressing that you see everybody accepts, well, whatever the objections to abortion, right now we need every possible manner to limit the number of births. So this is, this is allowed and not really questioned. But according to the Hindu Shastras, it is a grave sin. Then uh, another issue that was briefly and a little bit alive in India, much less than in America, is uh, the issue of uh, so-called gay marriage. Now some people will say there is nothing gay about homosexuality. Gay originally meaning you know, pleasant, joyful, right? Anyway, for what it is worth, you know, at any rate, this is, this is an issue over there and in many Western countries. In India, not so much. There is a law about 150 years old, enacted by the British, because they saw to their horror that these pagan natives did not have a prohibition on homosexual unions. So they introduced this prohibition of sodomy. And um, so that, that's still on the, on the statute books. Uh, however, it was enacted out of Christian fervor and imposed upon a largely Hindu, also Muslim population, because it didn't exist in India. You see, Hindu tradition doesn't have that prohibition. You see, in the Shastras, there is really no talk about homosexuality. You know, they follow a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy, to use Bill Clinton's term. So they just don't bother about it, but they don't punish it, which is fairly modern compared to, you know, the stoning or any other death sentences they carry out in the Muslim world, or compared to the uh, imprisonment that was meted out to, uh, you know, famous homosexuals in Britain like uh, Oscar Wilde or Alan Turing. So, um, you know, there's not much life about this. There are right now groups who advocate this, this, uh, the rights of homosexuals. And so they achieved a very important thing, namely that that British law was effectively annulled. It's still on the statute books. It's not officially by law abolished, but effectively it is abolished, uh, which is only right. Then uh, the same, practically the same scenario with euthanasia. Now, in the West, you see, they hardly know peaceful ways of ending life. Uh, though it happens, you see, people who work in the, you know, old age care, they say that quite a few old people at some point just simply stop eating. Uh, but otherwise, you know, if you are in a painful disease or something, uh, in some countries, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, you have the right to, you know, go through some procedure with the doctors, uh, surveying it, but ultimately you can earn the right for having your life ended in a medically assistant, assisted uh, fashion. Now in India that has not been considered, uh, however there is a practice of ending your, your own life, namely precisely 
the one that is already informally effectively practiced by many old people in the West, namely to fast yourself unto death. It is in fact that practice, you see, which Mahatma Gandhi appealed to uh, in his life when he wanted to achieve something, he would claim to fast unto death, but before he got that far, the other party gave in. Now, um, in, uh, where he came from in Gujarat, this is very common, the Jain sect is very strong, also the, the Vaishnavism is very influenced by Jainism, and so this practice is uh, among Jains especially rather common. Uh, other um, known Hindus who have done it is, are, include um, uh, Vinayak Damodar Savarkar, the nationalist leader, in 1956 thereabouts, and then uh, Vinoba Bhavi, the Gandhian, uh, in 1982 thereabouts. At that time he was visited on his deathbed by Indira Gandhi, the Prime Minister. And so at the time you see these secularist uh, newspaper editors fulminated uh, uh, he should not have received the visit of the Prime Minister he should have been imprisoned he was breaking the law of the land well 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 you see this again is, uh, is a trespassing against a law imposed by the British out of Christian fervor in Christianity you're not supposed to take power over life and death. Only God can do that. In fact, in Catholicism, there even is a prayer where you promise to God that whatever circumstances he has in mind for you to let you die, you will accept those. Even if it's the most humiliating, ignominious, or painful form of death, you accept that. So in the case of euthanasia, you don't accept that. So in India, the practice of violent euthanasia, I mean, not that there's blood being spilled, but in the West they give some kind of a poison, which is a form of violence, strictly speaking. So in Jainism in particular, they avoid that violence, and so they uh, end their life in a very peaceful way, namely by not eating anymore. But that too was forbidden by this British law, which was still effective in independent India. So um, after some cases of people who tried to end their life that way and being stopped by the police, uh, giant organizations went to court to have this law annulled and ultimately they won. So again, you see, this law is not, has not been abolished by Parliament, but effectively it has been abolished. And so, you know, in the list of countries that accept euthanasia, India at least accepts that form of euthanasia. So that's a, an important victory of native cultural values over imposed Christian values. So, and, and this is not the doing of the BJP or some, some other Hindu force. No, they're just quietly, uh, but it's being done.
So, I mean, uh, culture war does not simply mean Hindus passively succumbing to Americanization or something. Though they do that, you know, in, in a visible manner. Over here, I don't see it, but when I go out on the street, I see all these girls in blue jeans. You know, that's like not very intelligent. You see, I mean, you see, Hindus have a way of taking over the worst from the West and leaving the best aside. Like Mahatma Gandhi, for example, he, um, he was very much into Christianity. But, you see, in, in the field of religion, the really good thing coming from the West in the late 19th, early 20th century was the critical study of religion which debunked religion and which, you know, did not have any patience with stories about some spokesman of God claiming to hear voices and then this was the voice of God and, you know, the sort of materialization it becomes the Quran or the Ten Commandments. Well, you see, scientists were reading the Bible critically and they left uh, nothing standing of that superstition. But that, you see, Gandhi didn't know at all or he didn't want to know, he didn't pay attention to, he certainly didn't propagate. On the contrary, all the missionary propaganda about Jesus being so saintly and being some kind of guru and so on, you see, that, or that's how he translated it. Um, that, of course, is very popular among Hindus, is being spread left and right, is in the textbooks and so on. So... You see, Hindus don't use their power of viveka, of uh, discrimination, to see Western influences as sometimes very good, sometimes very retrograde. So it's the worst that they take over. Like taking clothing, as I was mentioning. In the hot climate of India, the native clothes of India are just the best you can get. You see, dhotis and saris and so on are just very good. They're also far more aesthetic. You see, Western dress is really, you know, it's children's dress. And it, um, it doesn't make you come out, you know, your best. It, um, it means that if you're fat, you look very fat. And if you're thin, you look very thin. If you're square and edgy, that's all emphasized. Whereas the sari does just the opposite. The sari makes you more beautiful. Whatever shape you are, you are always better with the sari. See, and so instead, you see, these girls wear blue jeans. Come on. You know, I mean, it's way too hot over here to wear blue jeans. Okay, so, and now you see it is in many other fields. You see this, I mean, in my childhood, I saw the same thing happening in Europe to a lesser extent because the difference was m much less striking. But, you know, we had a phenomenon called Americanization. Um, like, for instance, the very first time I was in America, 1993, um, the very first day, to my great surprise, my host took us out to go somewhere to have breakfast. 
at the time in Europe, this hardly existed. Um, you know, breakfast was really a time when you were together as a family. Maybe in the evening you had things to do and so on. It was difficult to arrange. But in the morning, at least, everybody was together. And so to go out for breakfast looked so absurd. Now, the difference with India is far bigger because at the time, there was no culture of going out eating. Not for breakfast, but not in the evening either. And so that has gradually crept in. And now, of course, it is everywhere. Um, so that's one form of Americanization taking place. You know, the food people eat, many Western things, and not the best of the West is coming. Like here, I've been looking for what we in the West call a health food shop. And so it has, it has Indian stuff, it has lots of Japanese cuisine, and so on. And, you know, here you don't find this. I'm told in Auroville, you know, in Pondicherry, there, is, there are such, you know, after the Western example. Here, I don't know, I haven't found it in Delhi. This city of millions. Um, so that, that could, you could usefully import from the West. But instead, you know, you have all these McDonald's and, uh, you know, all these, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken and all that. And, you know, people think it is progressive to eat meat. When, in fact, in the West, it's the other way around. It's progressive not to eat meat. So anyway, you know, there are many Western influences that I don't think are progress. Okay, now, this uh, culture war in India often goes about very different things than in the West. Mainly, it's a struggle between the so-called secularists and the Hindus. Secularists are mostly Hindu-born people, though in India the effective usage of secularist means everyone except for non-apologetic, uh, non-ashamed Hindus. You see, if a, if a Hindu dares to speak up for himself, then immediately, Hindu toi! Yes. And then you're demonized and fascist and so on. And so everyone else is a secularist. You know, like for instance, Syed Shahabuddin, you know, he got, he, he was a leader in this Ayodhya agitation. He also demanded a ban on Salman Rushdie's book, the, the, the Satanic Verses. Now, in the West, a secularist would be someone who defends the right to publish criticism of religion. In India, just the other way around. I mean, you know, Shahabuddin should logically count as a paragon of Islamic fanaticism. Well, maybe he is, but at any rate, whatever he is, in India he's called a secularist. The missionaries, you know, the Christian missionaries are secularists. So, and then you have the Hindus, and in their case, Mostly, they are not secularists, but they are trying to be secularists. You know, like you have the BJP saying, oh, we are for genuine secularism, for positive secularism, for at any rate, secularism. And so, their, their highest ambition in life is not Hindu Rashtra or any other Hindu demand or 
reviving the Manu Smriti or, you know, reconquering Pakistan or something. No, it's their highest ambition in life is a pat on the shoulder from the secularists. Is that some secularist authority will say, now this time for once, this is really secular of you. You know, when Modi came to power for the second time, like the first thing he did was to found some colleges only for Muslims. Now this is like anti-secular par excellence. Yet, all the secularists are in favor of it. And still, even though he tried valiantly to do something secular, I have not heard or seen any secularist say, ah, now this is good of Modi. Hmm? So anyway, we have that struggle, Hinduism versus secularism. And so we have a number of interesting instances. And so there are some, some chapters here um, about that. Is yoga Hindu? Does anyone have an opinion on that? Sadhguru, whom you know, says it isn't. And many other people, you know, uh, Deepak Chopra, the, the, the sort of spiritual businessman, and, you know, that kind of people, you know, who cater to a Western audience, they say it has nothing to do with Hinduism. But you see, even Sadhguru, who is very respected by many Hindus, and who often speaks up for Hindus, and you know, in, in TV debates and so on, he gives hell to some of these secularists. Yet, you see, he's saying this, and he's proving it by comparing it with the law of gravity of Newton. You know, Isaac Newton, he was a very committed Christian, like, you know, he believed in Christian chronology. He believed that the prophecies in the Bible, you know, were proving true throughout history. They proved correct, which is interesting for us. You see, maybe I'll miss it, but some of you are still young enough to be there in the mid-20th century when the world will end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was a great scientist, of course, but he was also a biblical fundamentalist. And so, so he, uh, well, he discovered gravity. And um, maybe he was not even the first. Some people say that in the ancient Hindu scriptures it's also already recognized. Anyway, I mean, in, in the world in which he was living, you know, he started this uh, idea of a law of gravity. And so, according to Sadhguru, if you call yoga Hindu, then you should call gravity Christian. Now, that is not exactly the same thing. Inferring the law of gravity from empirical observation is something anyone can do. In this case, it happened to be someone who was Christian. Like, in the daytime, he was a physicist. And, you know, when he came home, he turned into a biblical fundamentalist. I mean, you see, engineers and so on, people from the hard sciences, they can easily compartmentalize. You see, half of their brain is scientific and half of their brain is superstitious. 
like in the American creationist movement, they do not boast of philosophers or historians in their ranks because those people think critically and they don't take the Bible literal, literally. But they have a lot of engineers and doctors and so on, hard scientists who have never learned to think critically, but who have learned to think scientifically. But when they come home, you know, leave your coat at the gate, so to speak, you know, they put off their scientific mind and then they go into superstitious mode. All right? So, you know, Newton was like that. But the law of gravity does not thereby become Christian. There's nothing in Christian teachings that contains the law of gravity. Not any more than there is in Greek philosophy or in any other religion. So, you don't need Christianity to infer the law of gravity. Whereas you do need somewhat of Hindu culture to come to yoga. You know, yoga didn't come about just anywhere. It didn't come about in a Christian circle or in an Islamic circle. Yoga, in a way, is self-reliant. In me, you do exercises and you achieve something. You achieve Kaivalya or Nirvana or whatever you call it. The, the, the zero state of consciousness. Whereas in Christianity, you need to go through Jesus. There's no salvation outside Jesus or outside the church, the church tradition, as the, the, the Catholic variety says. The Protestant variety is more the personal Jesus. But at any rate, nothing else self-reliance. You are being saved. You can't save yourself. Similarly, in Islam, you know, you have to accept the Quran and that the Quran was revealed to Muhammad and so on. So they don't lead to yoga. Even if, you know, a person who happens to be a Muslim or a Christian can practice yoga. But that means that, again, he compartmentalizes. Like now in the Middle East, you have more and more yoga centers. And so, and there, you know, I mean, they're started by people like Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. And so they are good at flattering Islam. And so, I mean, everything he says about Islam is just silly, but I don't mind, you see. If that's the price he has to pay in order to get Muslims to do yoga, I won't interfere. Let him. But so, you know, what they are doing at that moment is un-Islamic. And some keenly, you know, observing Muslims do realize that. Like in Malaysia... Hindus can practice the Surya Namaskar, the salutation to the sun. Muslims can't. Because it is idolatry. And indeed it is, you know, in the Bible and in the Quran, this praying to the rising sun is, is like the example par excellence of idolatry. You see these venerating these murtis and so on. Yeah, that's bad enough. The rising sun, now that is real idolatry. Well, um, 
so you have a choice to make. Either you are a Christian or a Muslim, or you practice yoga. But strictly speaking, they are incompatible. So my position is that yes, yoga is Hindu. And of course, Hindu, Hinduism is a, is a very broad term, you know, very capacious. And so there's room in that for yoga. It's not all yoga, but it's in there. Uh, what else it could be Hindu? Come on. Um, yes. What about Ilahabad? Now it doesn't exist anymore. But you see, I was there a year or so before its name was changed. This was uh, the keynote speech in some Sanskrit conference. And um, so I discussed precisely the name of the city. So me too, I, I proposed a name change. I proposed to change the name from Ilahabad to Ilahabad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant a different name, but that happens to be synonymous with the f older name. Yes. Now, what is the story of the name Ilahabad? The city was built by Akbar. Before that, already for thousands of years, Hindus had been living thereabouts, but the area of the Sangam, where the Ganga and the Yamuna came together, that they left empty. And every 12 years, they had a big pilgrimage there. You see, I mean, now it's the biggest gathering of human beings in world history, you see, which only is superseded by the next Kumbha Mela. Hmm? And so then already it was a big gathering, already since Vedic times. But so the Sangam itself was left empty. Now there a fortification was built by Akbar, and he called it Ilahabad. Anyone knows what Ilahabad means? Abad means city. Now what is Ilah? Exactly. It was the new religion he was propagating. It was the Deen i Ilahi, right, which is the, you know, what you translate as the uh, Daivika Dharma, you know, the, the divine religion. It's, uh, it's an Arabic term. Deen means practically the same as Dharma. And I know that some people, like Rajiv Malhotra, insist on the untranslatability of Sanskrit terms. Like, to find an English equivalent for dharma is indeed very difficult. I haven't found one. But in the case of Arabic, the word deen is really very, very similar in meaning to dharma. Uh, so it means both religion, in the sense of worshipping, and it also means ethics. So it means, you know, the correct relation between you yourself as a little part of the whole, and the whole. And it also means the correct relation between you, little part, and all the other little parts. That's what we call ethics. And so, Dean also has these two meanings. Now, um, so that, that is a good translation. And then, Ilahi means divine. You see, not to be confused with Allah, 
the British, they transcribed it mistakenly as Allahabad. Right? Allah is an Arabic contraction of Al-Ilah, which means the deity. So you have many pagan deities, but the deity that is Allah. And that in fact itself is a pagan term. You know, the deity means the foremost deity, or which deity is foremost for you? The one you happen to be praying to, your Ishta Devata. So there are Arab texts where it is described that some Arab had some idol of some specific deity, and he was praying to that, and so he was kneeling to Allah, to the deity, meaning the one he was then facing. So in Islam, this gets the meaning of, you know, the, the supreme deity. It becomes a synonym, synonym of the biblical concept Yahweh. Um, yeah, so uh, in the case of Muhammad, it was focused on the main deity of the city of Mecca, because all the deities were very localized, you know, just like... In India, you know, Durga, Kali are associated with Kolkata, and Indra is more this uh, Haryana area, like Indra Prastha, which is Delhi, um, and so on. So there too, uh, the main deity of the city worshipped in the Kaaba was the moon god Hubal, right? Hubal is very similar to Shiva, which is why some... Some Indians who are a little bit fanatical say, oh yeah, you know, the Kaaba was a Shiva temple. That's not entirely true, but then again, Hubal was very similar to Shiva. And um, now typical for moon gods is that they are depicted with three goddesses. This has to do with the moon cycle. You see, after the new moon, when the moon is invisible, you get the very first moon cycle crescent and then it becomes bigger you get the full moon and then it goes smaller again and you have the last moon those are the, those three women and so depending on the deity they are described as his daughters or his wives or even his mothers you see like uh, Swami Veda Bharati translates the Murtyunjaya mantra with the phrase Triambakam Yajamahe he says, you see, Triambaka is often translated as the three-eyed one. Actually, literally, it means the one with the three mothers. Amba means mother in Sanskrit, right? So there you have the same idea. And um, so that moon god with his three goddesses, was worshipped very much so that when Muhammad tried to sell his message, which was centered less on Allah and more on himself, you know, he, he wasn't getting anywhere, so he tried to get somewhere by making a compromise with the pagans. He said, okay, you know, you limit your worship of deities to just these three goddesses. As long as you accept me as the prophet, it's okay. Because after all, what Muhammad wanted most was a pat on the shoulder. <laughs> Not so much from the secularists, but from everyone. 
You see, he wanted, and this is said explicitly in the Quran, he wanted the whole world to become Muslim. So, um, so for that he was willing to make a compromise. And so that's where you get Rushdie's theme from the satanic verses. You see, that's a verse from the Quran which was revealed to him, so to speak, uh, in which these three goddesses are accepted. But then you see the few people who had already converted, they, they said, what is this? We were asked to burn our own gods, and now suddenly these three are accepted. Then he saw, yeah, you know, that's not, I can't, I can't keep this up. And then he said, yeah, well, you know, these verses must have been whispered into my ear by the devil. That's why they're called the satanic verses. And so then the three goddesses were thrown out again. Uh, okay, so, I mean, that gives an idea of what the word ilaha means. It means divine, it means the world of the gods, which is very similar to what you find in the Vedas. Um, so, Akbar had really ceased to be a Muslim. Yeah, I mean, he, he took the forms of Islam, you know, he honored them. He didn't go too far, he didn't want to offend the mullahs and so on too much. But effectively, he had apostatized, apostatized from Islam. And so he founded his own religion, which he saw as a tehzib, a confluence of the Ganga and the Yamuna, that is to say, of Hinduism and Islam. And that's why he founded this city, symbolically situated on the confluence of the Ganga and the Yamuna. So that is Ilahabad, the divine city, meaning the city embodying the divine religion. Okay? Now, I think that's a very good name. Because there is someone in Vedic history who went to live there. Yes. An Ilahabadi by choice. Who was she? Ah, yet you see the name Ilahabad gives it away. Ilah, <laughs> of course. Ilah is the foremother, the ancestress of the Vedic Rishis. Right? The daughter of Manu, she was his eldest child, I believe. And so, but because she was a woman, she couldn't inherit the throne. So she left the throne to her younger brother, Ikshwaku. She herself moved out, namely to the nearby city, from Ayodhya, so to the nearby city of what was later called Ilahabad. And, you know, there she had a son, uh, Pururavas, who started the lunar dynasty, which was sort of in the shadow of the solar dynasty, but nevertheless, which generated later on the Vedas. So anyway... Um, so Ila went to live there so what I propose is you know we can call this the Abad of Ila you know down with all these you know Islamic or Dini Ilahi connotations let's just you know remake it into a Vedic city the city of Ila and we call it Ilahabad <laughs> see you know, I mean, that's like secularism in practice, you know. Okay, um, then, you know, let's, let's take something really serious. 
in favor of freedom of expression. A few years ago, Wendy Doniger became famous by publishing this book about the alternative history of the Hindus. Now, there's really nothing alternative about it. It's the standard Hindu bashing narrative. Peppered a little bit that, you know, not everybody is talented enough to do that, but in her case, peppered with many erotic choices, you know. Um, she says, how does she say it? Um, well, now, excuse me here, you know, I'm quoting an American full of Americanisms, and so I, I don't think you people are Americanized enough already to appreciate this, but I'm going to try to say it anyway. So she says that an intellectual is someone who has found something more interesting than sex. And what is an Indologist? Well, an Indologist is an intellectual who is intelligent enough to avoid that choice. You see, studying India is very interesting, but it's full of sex. And so her account of Hinduism sees sexual dimensions to everything, right? So, you know, so her book is, is conceived as very debunking, desacralizing, you know, very candid. Namely, it tells Hindus that all that they believe in is really sex. You know, they think that this, this, this pillar represents Shiva, but in fact it is the phallus and like that, you know. So many Hindus didn't like this book. They thought it did great injustice to Hinduism, that the whole profundity of Hindu philosophies, philosophies was like ridiculed this way. And um, yeah, that's, I, I share that opinion more or less. Now, one thing you can do then is to write a counter book. And indeed, in this case, this was very easy because the book is full of errors. So Vishal Agarwal, a medical engineer based in Minnesota, but also a very active Hindu, teaches courses of Hinduism to children and youngsters in his temple in, in Minnesota. He um, wrote simply a list of all the errors in the book, which fills another book. So many are there. So that's a very good approach. But other Hindus thought differently, and especially a certain Dinanath Batra went to court to have this book banned. Then the publisher developed cold feet. He wanted to avoid being sentenced. And so he agreed to withdraw the book. Now, this is like, you know, this is very ineffectual in the modern age. You see, before too long, of course, the book was on the internet. Anybody could read it. Then soon after, another publisher agreed to publish it anyway. So there's also a paper version which you can buy anywhere in India. And so all that the uh, 
party around Dinanath Bhatra achieved was to make Hindus look like humorless touch-me-nots. Now, in that context, a number of Indologists uh, made a petition in defense of the book. So far, so good. And they had found that the operative article of law that was used to intimidate the publisher was 295A of the um, Indian Civil Code. Uh, no, of the... Of the, of the Penal code, yes. And um, so in that petition, they wanted the abolition of this article. Now, I, I think that's great. <laughs> and I think every Hindu should support that. I signed the petition. Um, but you see, <laughs> you see all those Indologists don't know much about Indian history and certainly not about communal issues. You know, what happened? There was uh, already a British law against insulting people and so on, 295. But then you see a little amendment was added to it, and the context is the following. India, you know, the Hindus in India have never ever published any criticism of Islam. Or Christianity, yes. Not as long as these Christians were minding their own business down in Kerala. But you see, as soon as the missionaries came, especially after the British had come, you see, some of these Protestant missionaries started writing against Hinduism, saying what was all wrong with Hinduism and why literate Hindus, you know, should, you know, be convinced to come over to Christianity. And so then you have Hindus replying to that. And so you have Hindu critiques of Christianity, right? But not of Islam. The first one to do so was uh, Dayanand Saraswati of the Arya Samaj. One chapter in his book Satyarta Prakash is a critique of the Quran. It's a not very sophisticated critique. And of course there's much else in Islam beside the Quran. But okay, it's a beginning. And it was radical. It was not, we're not half waste of it, we're not Gandhian or something. No, 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 you see. He said the Quran is wrong, the Quran is immoral, the Quran is not true. Now, he was killed for a different reason. But, you see, the Muslims didn't like it one bit. Especially when the Arya Samaj started putting it into practice. It started convincing Muslims to leave Islam. Now, that was a bridge too far. So, the next person who wrote a critical book about Islam, Pandit Lekram, he was killed in the 1890s still. And then a number of other Arya Samajis that criticized Islam were all of them killed. And so, the most sensational case was in 1926 with Swami Shraddhananda. He's a very important figure in the history of the Hindu movement. He's one of the founders of the uh, Hindu Mahasabha. He was very anti-caste. Um, so it's important to see that the Hindu movement uh, is not 
a reactionary movement, like many Westerners think, oh, a Hindu is a casteist, therefore a Hindu extremist is an extreme casteist. No, you see, the Hindu activism was reformist and saw caste as a, as a source of weakness. Um, now, you see, so that's more or less to situate uh, Shraddhananda. He also was very active in the Shudhi movement. Shudhi purification meant the Hinduization or re-Hinduization of Muslims. Now, for his, uh, his meritorious uh, labors, he was killed. And when the trial about the murder about the, you know against the murderer took place yet another murder happened namely against uh, Mahasai Rajpal he had not himself written but he had published a book also against Muhammad so Rajpal you know had done something similar he was also killed so the British had enough of this and they said you know we, we must stop this uh, not so much stop the Muslims from murdering, although they they did persecute or prosecute the murderer. That 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 much you know, they did. But um, they wanted to stop this whole thing by stopping Hindu criticism of Islam. And um, so they enacted 295A, which prohibits you from criticizing religions. So the religion meant was Islam, and it took decades before Christians and Hindus discovered that they too could use this law. So mainly it was to protect Islam from criticism. So all these secularists and their dupes in Western academe, they really loved Article 295A. You know, and many of them, like M.J. Akbar, like Kushwan Singh, supported the ban on Rushdie's book. Yeah, very anti-secular. So this 295 is uh, fits in with Nehruvian secularism. It is pro-Islamic and anti-Hindu. And therefore, I greatly enjoyed it when I saw all these secularists <laughs> signing a petition against Article 295A. Right? So, you know, this sort of strange turns, you know, where suddenly this article always used in favor of Islam was now suddenly used in favor of Hinduism. And then, you see, after it had condoned its use in favor of Islam for decades, now that the Hindus used it, now suddenly they were up in arms. Well, anyway, you know, I thought, well, it's a good thing that they are up in arms against this. So, you know, let's finish that article. Let's throw open the you know, the atmosphere for even criticism of religion. I mean, Hindus are already very much used to criticism of Hinduism. And, you know, Christians, you wouldn't know it if you look at India, but outside they're very used to criticism of Christianity. So that was my uh, position about this, you know, this little culture war, the Sati strategy. You see, sati is really not an issue. Sati meaning the, the, the self-burning of widows on their husband's funeral pyre. It's not really an issue. I mean, it doesn't happen anymore. 
You know, I, I just reviewed a book in, from my country, you know, where it is said offhand, uh, yes, and sati still happens a lot in India. No, that's, that's not true. No, no, you see this Hindu bashing is all over the place. And so some factually untrue statements are pretty common as long as they serve the purpose of blackening Hinduism. Now, uh, that, you know, started as a review of Meenakshi Jain's book. But earlier also I've written about Sati and researched this a little bit. So, as you know, since 1829 it is forbidden. It had already been forbidden in some of the Maratha states. It's not just the British with Lord Bentinck who, um, who brought about this prohibition. But anyway, it's forbidden. And if in the 1980s it came in the news again with the sati of uh, Roop Kanwar, well, it came in the news precisely because it was so exceptional. Precisely because it had, you know, been deemed to be, to be extinct. So a very, very rare case happened. And ever since it hasn't happened again. Um, so there you should see its use as one of the many examples of a stick you can beat Hinduism with. And that's also how it was initially used. You see, the British Protestant missionaries, when painting a picture of dark heathenism in India, they used the, 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 the example of sati left and right. Um, this is uh, in imitation of the Bible. You see, the Israelites uh, chided the Canaanites, whom they exterminated in Eretz Israel, the, the land of Jacob which is now Israel. Um, so they exterminated the Canaanites using as a justification the fact that the Canaanites, what did they do? They practiced sacrifice of the firstborn. This is also uh, attested by the Romans when they fought against Carthage. Carthage was a colony of the Canaanites. So they traveled around the Mediterranean and they set up a few cities here and there. One of them was Carthage. So the Carthaginians also practiced this. And especially when they were in trouble, when the Romans were besieging their city, they felt like it's now or never. So with extra fervor, they sacrificed their firstborn. And the Romans saw this, you see, and they painted a picture also of bar barbarity. The Romans themselves had earlier known human sacrifice in general that they had abolished, you know, a few generations earlier only. And then they saw it right in front of their eyes and not even with just any uh, human being, but with the firstborn. You see, many nations have known human sacrifice. The, the most famous case is the Aztecs in Mexico. But, you know, the Aztecs believe that the sun needs to be fed with fresh hearts, taken right from somebody still alive, and otherwise the sun would not rise. Right? So it was very, very, very necessary to bring human sacrifices. But they used any human being they could find. 
like you see prisoners of war or criminals they had caught or whoever the king wanted to get rid of, you know, he could be used for human sacrifice. Now, the Canaanites were made of sterner stuff. You see, if you're going to sacrifice to a god, you don't take your garbage bag and dump it on the altar. You know, if you give something to God, it must not be just anything. You know, among human beings, you don't pick your criminals. No, no, you pick the best. And so, what human being do other human beings love most? Their own firstborn child. So, if you want to give God the best, you have to sacrifice your own firstborn child. Okay? Now, that's what they did. And so, the, uh, the Israelites thought it was horrible. And so, they described, for instance, as hell, uh, the valley in which these sacrifices took place. And they described the crying of the children when they're being killed. So, that is their image of hell. And so, they use that to justify their conquests and their genocide of the Canaanites. So, you see, the Protestant missionaries in the 18th, 19th century did the same thing with sati. They said, you see, these Hindus are horrible, they practice sati. Although in many British, as in earlier Greek descriptions of the practice of sati, it is always emphasized that sati was voluntary that a woman needed a lot of willpower to get onto that funeral pyre because she was being dissuaded time and again. Often the king would send someone or he would come himself to dissuade her. And uh, so if she really wanted it, she could do it. And then, of course, once the flames, you know, were eating her, then, of course, many <laughs> regretted it because it was painful. But the fact that then they started screaming and so on, does not prove that it was involuntary. You know, at first they were being heroic and so on. That's why it mainly happened among the Rajputs and other martial castes, where they had an ethos of bravery, of passion. And so in that, you know, this, this really fitted. Whereas, you see, and this is then where Hinduism comes into play. Hinduism is not responsible for that. Hinduism as such certainly not the high Vedic culture, because what do the Vedas say? Do you know? No, really, this is important. This is something, this should be your, your ready knowledge. You should have this at your disposal anytime some Christian missionary or some secular says, ah, but you Hindus, you have sati. So, what does Hinduism say about sati? You know, first of all, in the Shastras, you know, they, they talk about all kinds of things, not about Sati. And so it existed in certain corners of society, mostly not. You see, the lower castes, like the Muslims today, they had a, let's say, a custom of exploiting every womb to the hilt. So, you see, if a woman fell without a husband to sire children upon her, she was expected to remarry. Often the brother of the dead husband, 
you know, or somebody close so that she would stay in the family because her children were also part of the family. But at any rate, this womb was used. She was to remarry. Among Brahmins, by contrast, the idea was that purity, you know, she belongs to this one husband, now that he's dead, she can't remarry. So she puts on white clothes and she remains effectively something like a nun, but still living within the family. And so they did not practice sati. Now, what does Hinduism say? Well, in this case, it is very clear and very explicit. The very first mention of sati is in the Rig Veda. And then you have later mentions like in the, uh, in the Mahabharata, for instance, you have King Pandu, who is followed on the pyre by Madri. Because he is a Kshatriya. Now, he has that ethos of bravery and passion and all that. Um, and moreover, she herself feels a little bit guilty about his death. She feels very involved. So anyway, so she does that. But in general, you know, what counts is what the Rig Veda says about this. And what does the Rig Veda say? Aha. Now, are there any Hindus here? Because I hear Hindus say all the time, yeah, you know, the Vedas are divinely revealed. They exist from creation onwards and so on. Well, you see, the more people extol the Vedas, the more certain it is that they have never read them. The Vedas themselves don't claim to be eternal. They are not God-given. They are the work of the Rishis, who are poets. And sometimes the Rishis themselves say, look what a beautiful poem I wrote. You know, like Vasishta, after, you know, he's the court priest of King Sudas who wins the battle of the ten kings. So he says, oh, you know, this victory is because me, with my great poems, I have persuaded God Indra to help us. Right? So it's very explicit. He does not say, oh, God has revealed to me this poem. No, no, I have composed this poem. Right? And so all the Vedic verses are about human beings worshipping the gods, addressing the gods, you know. Uh, Om Agnim Ila, you know, I worship the fire. You know, the god, the, you know, the fire god in this case is the object. The subject is the poet. You know, um, what have you more? Triambakam Yajamahe, you know, we worship the three-eyed one or the three-bothered one, whatever. But it is we who worship, not, you know, we don't need him to tell us what to do. And anyway, people who say that it's the gods, you know, who, who wrote all this stuff, this, what they are saying is that the gods were very arrogant narcissists. You know, they always go on praising themselves. They put words into other people's mouths, praising themselves. What is this? No, no, you see, you have human beings praising the gods. It's just the opposite from the Quran. In the Quran, it is God speaking and man listening. You know, here we have man speaking. Right. Now, okay, so we want to know what the Vedas say. Now, what do they say? Ha, 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 ha. Well, they say this. They describe one case of Sati. So you can't say, oh, Sati is because of the Muslim invasions. That's not true. You see, there is something similar, Jauhar, which means that in the face of imminent defeat, you see, the women made a big pyre and threw themselves into it. But that's a, a different phenomenon. 
although it affected the same class of people. You know, these princesses did not tell their servants, you have to burn yourself. Maybe they could join, but, you know, that was not their, their job. It was for the noble women to do that. And you can see, by the way, it also existed in Europe. And so among the Greeks, where women were held in very low esteem, it did not exist. It is where women had a high position, like among the Celtic people. There you had lots of sati, right? Um, so again, in India, it is the proud women, the high-placed women who practice this. Nevertheless, the Rig Veda, written at a time when the caste system really didn't exist yet, um, they describe such a case uh, where a woman climbs on the pyre and she has her husband in, in her his head in her lap, and then she's persuaded, "Come on, woman, you know, leave this man. He's dead. He's joining the world of the dead." You are alive, you join again the world of the living. And so she's led away from the pyre. That is the Brahminical uh, idea of, uh, of Sati. You see, the decision to commit Sati is taken at a very emotional moment. A cremation in Hinduism has to take place within 24 hours. So you are just struck by the, the, the terrible news of the death of your husband. And so, yeah, you know, in that emotional moment, some people take unbalanced emotional decisions. Now, that's not Brahminical. Brahminism is all about self-control and, you know, equanimity and so on. And so, sati doesn't fit in there, so they forbid sati. Right? So, you know, that is the debate that's going on. You know, when they try to blacken Hinduism, you tell them the truth. And in fact, that's always the best option. You know, I mean, I, I hear many Hindu activists say, Oh, Dr. Elst, you know, you make, all, make things difficult, you know. I mean, this is for intellectuals, but common people, you know, it doesn't matter what they say, you know. That's not true, you know. On the contrary, it is our responsibility to, you know, teach even the masses, even the illiterate ones, you know, in their own language if necessary, but we teach them the truth. And in this case, you see, the truth happens to be strategically more profitable. Uh, it's something related. It's about the Pishacha Vivaha and the Rakshasa Vivaha. Aha, what are they? Uh, the Pisachas is a, actually a tribe somewhere in Kashmir, some barbaric tribe. So the name Pisacha has more or less the same emotive value as the word cannibal. And uh, the Rakshasas also are some tribe, you know, and they're deemed demonic and so on. You also have the Asuras. But the Asuras are held in high respect. You see, they're very competent. They're very good at things. Um, so that's a bit of a mixed picture. But the Rakshasas and the Pisachas are below everything. Now, there are eight types of marriage in the Shastras. And um, so you, you have different forms of arranged marriage. Uh, then you have the Ganda. They are praised most. They are more or less normative. Then you have the Gandharva marriage, which is also 
you know, effect of life. It's a love marriage. And then you have, uh, yeah, then you have uh, uh, also an arranged marriage, but for money. You know, some, some suitor comes by, you know, he's well endowed with lots of money, and he says, okay, I want to buy your daughter. And so that's what you still have in African tribes. That's also the principle among Muslims. It is the, the groom who pays. Whereas among Hindus, it's usually the other way around. It is the bride's family that pays. Strictly speaking, they don't really pay. What they do is they give the bride herself her, um, her uh, movable part of the inheritance because she doesn't get anything of the parental home, which goes to the sons. So the daughters get something else. So that is their dahij, their dowry. Anyway, um, so, you know, those are the sort of orthodox forms of marriage. Now, this um, uh, Rakshasa marriage is where um, she is abducted. And I mean abducted against her will. You know, you also have the situation where the two are in love and, you know, with her consent, she arranges for him to abduct her to create an accomplished fact that her father can't deny anymore so that he will allow the marriage. Now, um, in this case, she gets abducted forcibly. And the other case with the Pishacha marriage is she gets intoxicated. You know, this is something that still happens. You know, like in America, they call it date rape. You know, where you just have a romantic evening. But unbeknownst to her, you know, you make her drunk. And, or you give her a rohypno, you know, some date rape drug. And then you proceed. And the next morning... She's no longer a virgin. Where can she go? Well, in a traditional society, this was a big problem. Because nobody else would want her anymore. Her only chance was the man who had done it with her. And so, therefore, the Shastrakars, the, the lawgivers, foresaw, you know, provided for this form of marriage. What is did, you see... Anti-Hindus will say, ah, look at early uh, vicious, uh, ugly Hinduism, you know. They condone rape, you know, they condone, you know, this intoxication. Um, no. But these things are facts of life. They do happen. So what do the Shastrakars do? They don't say, oh, you see, this woman is soiled, you know, let her, well... If she's very lucky, she can maybe become the sort of mistress of some rich fellow, as long as her beauty lasts. Uh, or otherwise, she, you know, she goes into prostitution. No, they said, no, no, the, the best way out, the lesser evil, it's still evil, but, you know, it's the best we can do. She marries a rapist, because that way she is in a juridically stronger position vis-a-vis -vis her husband and his family. Then she has rights, she has all the rights of a wife. You know, if she gets pregnant and so on, she becomes part of that family, which is much better than to be thrown out on the street. Right? So, 
you know, you should look at these Hindu traditions in a, in a, in a balanced and, and reflective manner, and you can see, well, this makes sense. This doesn't mean that Hinduism condones all this. And usually when this is mentioned in the Shastra, it is also said very explicitly that, you know, this is to be condemned. Nevertheless, there is a lesser evil. They think of everything. You know, they try to achieve as much good as possible for as many people as possible. And so that is, a, that is a desirable thing. Okay, and now I'm going to add even two more minutes um, to say something about another uh, text that is enormously demonized, namely the Purusha Sukta. The Purusha Sukta appears in the 10th book of the Rig Veda, which is at the end. The Rig Veda, I don't know if you know, but um, it consists of the family books, then books 8 and 9 that come later, uh, and 1. And then the 10th book is written centuries later. It has a very different cultural atmosphere behind it. Now, in the family books, there is no such thing as a caste system. For example, you have a certain rivalry between uh, the seers Vasishta and Vishwamitra, the authors of the two most famous hymns, the Murtyunjaya and the Gayatri. Uh, but it has nothing to do with caste. Caste is not mentioned. Whereas in the Mahabharata, this story is retold, and there it is spun as a matter of caste rivalry where Vasishta is a Brahmin and Vishwamitra is not and he tries to become one. And so many foolish Hindus who try to ingratiate themselves with their critics say, ah, look, you see, there is no real caste because Vishwamitra, he could change caste. Yeah, but the story is precisely that he has to practice penance for a thousand years or something. So it is extremely rare. It's an extremely abnormal great achievement to change caste. So what it says to all the commoners is, well, the best thing you can do is just accept your caste. Right? So in the Mahabharata, this becomes a caste story and a pro-caste story. Um, whereas originally it's not. Now, so caste has a history. And so, contrary to what the traditionalists say, who say that this is God-given and this is part of nature and Sanatana Dharma has always accepted it and will always accept it, no, you see, it has a history. It started at a certain point, it didn't exist. And then, in stages, you see it come into being. You know, like in the start of the Mahabharata, which is just after the Vedas, which involves Veda Vyasa, the one who has edited the Vedas, right? And he's the biological grandfather of the heroes of the Mahabharata. Um, in his life, you can see a beginning stage. You know, he is the son of the seer Parashara, one of the great sages, with a fisher girl. You know, she's definitely not a Brahmin. In fact, in the story, it appears later that she's only the adoptive daughter of the fisherman. You know, actually, she's a princess. But even as a princess, she's a Kshatriya and not a Brahmin. So, at any rate, it is caste mixing. Now, nothing is thought of this. On the contrary, the son, Veda Vyasa, is the Brahmin par excellence. He's the one for whom you celebrate Guru Purnima. Um, so, there, you know, this is accepted. In the Ramayana, 
You know, you see Rama fraternizing with these tribals, these bushmen. Um, you also see Ravana pursuing Sita. Now, whatever was wrong with what Ravana did, at any rate, he was a Brahmin pursuing a Kshatriya woman. So again, you see Varna Sankara. So at that time, nothing was thought about Varna Sankara. Then, some generations later, we get books like the, the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and there it is a bit different. Now, of course, we don't know when that was written. I think it was written a thousand years after the actual battle. And so the, the view of caste is completely different. Namely, um, Arjuna starts arguing, you know, if I start fighting this battle against my cousins, uh, this will lead to Varnasankara, to the immorality of women, is said explicitly. So what we mean is not the spin that some Hindu apologists nowadays give to it, that, you know, someone from one caste shouldn't try to pretend to be the other caste, like a politician shouldn't start moralizing, for example. He should stay with politics and leave the, you know, the morals and so on to the Brahmins or what the equivalent in, in modern times. Um, no, you see, they really mean the immorality of women, the fact that women sleep around and don't look at the caste of their partner and so their children are of mixed caste. Right? And Krishna says, you know, you must fight. You know, because this is your duty, blah, 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 blah. And if you don't do it, it will lead to Varnasankara. Now, you see, if the opposite parties in a debate base their opposite viewpoints on a common value, then you know that that common value is really held sacred in that society. So, here we are writing at a time when endogamy the fact that you have to marry someone from the same caste was fully established. And so, personally, I think that was only around the time of Christ. In the Buddha, you see a changeover. You see, in the beginning, you have a patrilineal caste. You are the same caste as your father. Mother's caste doesn't matter at all. Now, you see, a friend of the Buddha, King Prasenajit, uh, at some point, he discovers that his wife is not a Kshatriya. That she's in fact some other king's, you know, illegitimate daughter. You know, he had done it with some maidservant, and so who was not of a Kshatriya caste. So, you see, the Prasenaji thought, oh, therefore my son, my heir, my successor is not a Kshatriya, will not be a legitimate king. And the Buddha says, no, come on, you know, you should, you know, you should take them back, you should not repudiate them, because in, in matters of caste, it's only the caste of the father that counts. You are a Kshatriya, therefore your son is a Kshatriya, whatever your wife is. Now, that is the old view. That's the patrilineal view that counted for Veda Vyasa, for example. Whereas Prasenajit has already gone over to the new view of caste endogamy the one that you see expressed in the Bhagavad Gita. And so geneticists have now discovered that the, the real caste system, where castes are totally distinct groups that don't marry uh, one another, that is about 2,000 years old. It's just at that time when we see in scripture also the full classical form of caste appearing. 
And so for the last 2,000 years, caste was not part of the essence of Hinduism, but it was intertwined with Hinduism. I mean, that, that you have to recognize, that you have to acknowledge, right? However, you see, Hindus in these last 2,000 years tried to give scriptural sanction to caste by bringing in the Purusha Sukta. Now, the Purusha Sukta is the first time the four Varnas, the four colors, are mentioned. That does not refer to skin color. Uh, that refers to four symbolic colors, you know, white being the Brahmin color, red being the Kshatriya color, and so on. Now, there is no talk of caste in the Purusha Sukta. It only says a developed society has four different functions. You have the spiritual function, Brahmins, you have the political function, Kshatriyas, you know, you have the sort of entrepreneurial function, Vaishyas, and then you have service to all the others, and that's Shudras. It doesn't say anything about the two defining traits of caste. One is hereditary profession. In the Vedas, this is not there at all. There are rishis who say, my father was a carpenter. Not a rishi. Um, but you see, there it starts appearing. Well, no, there it also doesn't start appearing. In the Purusha Sukta, nothing is said about hereditary caste. Nothing is said about you have to do the same thing as your father. And then the second is endogamy. You have to marry within your caste. Otherwise, it's not a caste. You can call it class or something, but not caste. Caste is endogamous. Nothing is said about that. So, caste is not present in the Purusha Sutta. Right? So, you know, this, uh, this idea came to me when I reviewed the book in which the author sort of apologizes for the Purusha Sutta and tries to say that it's an interpolation. Is no really part of the Rig Veda. Now, it so happens that uh, some Indologists, starting with Max Muller, did indeed say on totally different grounds that this verse is interpolated. I've tried to show in this book that it's not interpolated, but anyway, I mean, even if it was interpolated, it has become part of the Rig Veda and it has been cited for generations uh, as uh, authoritative because Vedic. Uh, anyway, but so that's a defensive move trying to say, oh no, it was borrowed, you know, it came from the Iranians. It so happens that the Iranians had the same system, the four pistras, which just like Varna means color, right? So they also had forecasts in the ancient pre-Islamic days. But that's not where it came from. And in fact, the, the Rig Veda usually is older than the Avesta. Um, and anyway, you know, at that time already they had very much split. You know, there were still Iranians around, but it was no longer such that they would have this imposing presence of changing the face of Hindu society. Not at all. So, you know, there is no reason for being apologetic about the Purusha Sukta. On the contrary, the Purusha Sukta is very profound. You see, it, it paints a picture of a correspondence between the individual, the body, the whole of society, and the whole of the universe. You know, it's, it goes back ultimately to an Indo-European myth of which you find versions among the Romans and elsewhere too. Even in the, even in the gospel, 
uh, in the New Testament, uh, Saint Paul gives that same simile of the body parts who all need each other. They're not equal, but they're all necessary. Not just necessary for themselves, but necessary for one another. This is ideology is called corporatism. And it was taken over by the Catholic Church. When the socialists started saying, oh, class struggle, you know, the revolt of the working masses against their masters, the Catholics said, no, no, all the classes need one another. The harmony model, corporatism. So that was based on the same vision as you find developed in the Purusha Sukta. And this, this, this vision makes good sense. So it says, you see, like the body, you have the universe. You know, like, uh, you know, the eyes of the Purusha are like the sun and the moon. You know, the skull of the Purusha is the heavenly vault. And the bones of the Purusha, they are like in the mountains and so on. And similarly in society, and now this is where we get the four Varnas. You know, the, the thinkers and so on, they are like the face of, of Purusha. And the kings and so on, they are like the arms of Purusha that way and so that's a pretty universal vision but it, the, the, you have a really nice formulation of it uh, in the Purusha Sukta so you should be proud of it you should not be apologetic for the Purusha Sukta and you know all these Hindu bashers they are wrong and Hinduism is right